You can open your Bibles to Hebrews 10. We're going to be looking at Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 18 this morning. Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. What question do you think I've been asked more than any other question for almost two years? When are you getting into that building? When are you guys going to get in there? My answer has been, I've kept the same standard answer for two years. The goal is fall of 2021. That's the goal. I say that for fun, and I say that just to give you all pleasure who thought that was crazy, who knew it would be crazy to try to get in there that fast. You were right. Uh, there's almost like an accusation in the question, though. When are you guys getting in there? I know people don't mean it as an accusation, but uh, there's just sort of, we don't, no one likes driving by things that we know are not finished. Uh, we don't like things that are incomplete. If you think about even just other projects in your own life, maybe your own renovation at your house or any kind of project, Honestly, unfinished, incomplete projects leave us unsettled. Uh, they're distressing. We, we want completion. We want, we want to come to the end of the thing, whether that's some giant building project or whether that's just getting the next meal on the table. It's relieving when the project is, is over. And that's true of things of ultimate importance also. That's also true for our souls. At the end of the day, there are only two religions and only one leads to completion and perfection. We're going to look at that in Hebrews 10 this morning. Hebrews 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ 
had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Father, we ask that you would take your word and plant it deep in our hearts so that we might have life and so that we might bear fruit for the sake of your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. In order to understand this passage, I think it's helpful to recognize one of the assumptions behind this passage. We could look for this and try to pull it out as we go through, but I think it's helpful to just state on the front end and then see it as we, as we work through. So here, here's one of the assumptions of this passage. The assumption is, you are made for worship. You're made for worship. You are the kind of thing, you're the kind of creature that's made in such a way so that you can behold something and then reflect or respond back to what you have seen, for, to what you have experienced. That, that's what you are. You're, you're, the, you're the creature who's been given that kind of capacity. And you do this all the time. We do this all the time. We, we look for greatness, we take in greatness, and then we respond to greatness. Have you tasted this coffee? Have you seen this movie? Have you heard this song yet? Have you been to this city? Have you traveled to this destination? Have you watched this player? Have you visited this restaurant yet? We're drawn to greatness. And it's not just enough to hear about it. It's not just enough to know about it. We have to experience it. But the problem is we are cut off from greatness. We get only tastes of greatness. We're cut off from the one that we're made to worship. That's what worship is. It's, it's taking in something great and then responding back to it. But we're cut off from the one that we're actually made to worship, the one we're made to behold and reflect and respond back to. We're cut off from the greatest source of delight and wonder and joy. The greatest source of wonder and delight is the one we're made to worship, the one we're made to delight in. And we're cut off from him. We're unable to draw near to him because we've compromised ourselves. We're in a state of uncleanness and unholiness and un righteousness. The way that Isaiah puts it, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people 
of unclean lips. We are sinners. We are creatures made for worship, but we're fallen creatures, which we call sinners. And, and we know we're sinners. Our consciences bear witness to the fact that we are guilty, that we are not Right, and every group of human beings knows this because every group of human beings deals with this in some way. And if we were going to describe in one word the way, uh, what it is that humans do to deal with this, it'd be the word religion. Religion is the way that human beings come together to solve this problem, to solve the problem of our own inadequacy, to solve the problem of of unburdening our consciences. Religion is the thing that we, that's the word we use to describe what human beings come together to do to, to find true and lasting joy and satisfaction. To answer the question, will, will my search ever be complete? Will my conscience ever be unburdened? Will I ever find fullness of joy. And Christianity says there is only one way. There's only one way. And in our text this morning, we're going to look at three reasons why Christ is the only way that we can reach the completion that we long for and the completion that we're made for. In Christ, there is completion through sacrifice. There's completion through offering. And there's completion through covenant. So we're going to look at sacrifice, offering, and covenant. So first, we, we are made com complete. We, we can find completion through sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice makes us complete because of its uh, substance, because of its finality and its body. I want to look at its substance, finality, and, and body. So look at verse 1. For, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So, so similar to what has come before in, in Hebrews, the Old Testament institutions, the Old Testament rituals, the Old Testament uh, people, the Old Testament roles, they're, they're, they're pointing forward to something greater. They're, they're shadows of something that's to come greater. We saw in Hebrews 8.5, a couple chapters back, Hebrews 8.5, that the Old Testament describes, or that, that uh, the author of Hebrews describes the Old Testament sacrifices and priesthood. Uh, he says they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. They're a copy and shadow of heavenly things. And, and verse 1 here describes the law. The law is the basis of the Old Testament, right? The first five books of the Bible we call the law. The law, the foundation of the Old Testament is, is here. It's called a shadow. It's also called a shadow of something. Now, shadows aren't bad. Uh, I've never heard of anyone being against shadows, uh, I guess. If, but, but if you want to marry someone and you only know them by their shadow, that's going to make your relationship pretty difficult. Uh, you, you really can't know someone closely at all. You only get a vague outline of who someone is by their shadow. And recognizing it as a shadow, we, we should also recognize there's, a, there's an important connection between someone's shadow and their, and their substance, we might say. Right? You, 
you're your substance, and then you cast a, cast a shadow. But there's an important connection between the two, right? You really can't separate those things. And so if the law is, is, is a shadow of, of, of what's to come, there's, there's an intricate connection. You, you can't disconnect. You can't unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. You can't unhitch the law from, from Christ. But this idea of, of, of shadow, it gives us an important category as we read and understand the Old Testament. It, it tells us we read the Old Testament as the realm of shadows, as a kind of shadow that's pointing forward to this something, someone greater who is who is to come. And when we read it this way, we see that the sacrifices that are offered according to the law provide no real solution for, for sin. This is where, for what we find in the law, it has, it has there's, there's, a, there's a parallel with what we find in human, human religion. Uh, for all of human religion, uh, law isn't a shadow. Law is the substance. Law is the substance for for, for, for human religion. The essence of law uh, is also the, the essence of human religion, which basically says, do this and live, fail to do this and die. Do this and live, fail to do this and die. That's, that's the essential message of, of religion. And it's the essential message of the law. And, but the message of Christianity, which is different, the message of Christianity does not say that there is no law. It's not opposed to law. The message of Christianity, though, says that there is more than just law. There's more than just law. In fact, the law is a shadow of the true substance. The law gives us repetitious sacrifices that perfect, that perfect nothing. They complete nothing. They, they foreshadow something that's that's to come. And, and so we, we find Christ in the book of Hebrews. Christ as the substance of the law. It's, it's Christ who, who casts the shadow that we find in the law in the Old Testament. So it's only Christ who can make someone complete because his sacrifice is what all the other Old Testament sacrifices pointed to. If we read in, back in Hebrews 7 verse 27, Christ has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Christ has a sacrifice, but it's on a, in a different category than Old Testament sacrifices. So Christ is, is the substance of the sacrifice. This leads us to the finality of that sacrifice. Look at verses 2 and 3 of Hebrews 10. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. The sacrifices in the Old Testament that were offered according to the law, they, they, they did nothing for sin. They didn't really solve any problem. They didn't offer any lasting cleansing. Someone would ask, well, didn't they cleanse anything? I mean, it seems like God approves of them as we, as we read the Old Testament. Well, it's, it's not like they're, they're doing absolutely nothing. Uh, it says back in chapter 9, Hebrews 9, 13, the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of vile persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh. 
So they, they made a kind of purification, but they made a kind of purification in the realm of, of shadows. They made someone able to be in God's presence through the tabernacle, but the tabernacle itself was a shadow of what was to come. The effect of the Old Testament sacrifices was no real solution for sin. The effect of the Old Testament sacrifices was just a reminder of sin. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, it's a, it's a reminder of sins every year. But Christ's sacrifice is different. Christ's sacrifice has been described as once for all, three times already in the book of Hebrews. And it's described in that way again in here in verse 10 of this passage. It's once for all, which means Christ's sacrifice ceases. Christ's sacrifice, it really cleanses so that it doesn't need to take place again. Christ's sacrifice, it doesn't remind us of sin. Christ's sacrifice reminds us of, of forgiveness. Just think of, think of the difference between the yearly sacrifice in the Old Testament that would take place at the Day of Atonement and, and contrast that with something else we do on a regular basis, the Lord's Supper, which we're going to have later this morning. If you're going to go back to the Day of Atonement, what's the most optimistic thought you can have on the Day of Atonement? Maybe I'll have less sins that need atonement next year than I have this year. That may be the most positive thing you could think, besides the fact that maybe there's another sacrifice to come. There has to be a greater sacrifice to come. But in, but in communion, in the Lord's Supper, what's the message that comes across there? The message of that, of that institution is that there was one sacrifice. There was one sacrifice for sin, which means it's over. It's finished. It's complete. Which leads us to verses 5 through 10, the body of the sacrifice. In, in verses 5 through 7, the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 40, which is a psalm of David. In Psalm 40, David, uh, he recounts how God's delivered him uh, in the past. And, and, and then uh, toward the end of the psalm, he asked for God to deliver him again. But in the middle of the psalm, David makes this observation about Old Testament sacrifices. In verse 5, he, he says, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. So here we see something important about God and sacrifice. We learn something important about the relationship between God and, and, and sacrifice. And that's that God doesn't necessarily like sacrifices. That's not the kind of God God is. God isn't bloodthirsty. Uh, you'll, you'll find that in pagan religions of, of, of gods who, who, who need to be satisfied. The only way they're satisfied is if there's blood in, in some kind of way. That's not actually the kind of God that the God of Scripture is. David writes something similar in Psalm 51. For you will do not, not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Well, if God institutes sacrifices, but he doesn't really actually want sacrifices, what is it that God actually wants? He says in verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. David understands it's at the end of the day, it's not sacrifices that God desires. What God desires is, is obedience. Sacrifice is just, is just in, 
uh, all that tells us is that, th- that, that the law has been broken, that, that, uh, uh, that satisfaction needs to be made. Sacrifices just communicate that there's guilt. God's not just looking for not guilty. God's looking for obedience. Consider what uh, the prophet Samuel says to Saul. Uh, back when Saul went and had the uh, 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 war with the Amalekites, and God gave Saul specific instructions, and that Saul failed to fulfill, Samuel, the prophet Samuel says to Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 22, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. So God isn't merely seeking paid fines. He's seeking obedience. He's seeking people who do his will. He's he's seeking people who hear his word and know his word and love his word and trust his word and then do his word. And the aftermath with, with Saul is that God took the kingdom from Saul And who did he give it to? He gave it to David. And here we have David in Psalm 40 saying, I have come to do your will. I delight to do your will. Of course, though, we know David didn't perfectly do God's will. We go on to read in the rest of 1 and 2 Samuel, David's list, his own list of faults and and failures. But just like other aspects of, of the Old Testament, just like the priesthood and the tabernacle and the sacrifices, David himself points forward to something greater to come. So even though David is the original author of Psalm 40, the author of Hebrews begins verse 5 here saying, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In a greater way, this psalm is actually about Christ. And then in verse 7, then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And then the author explains why he's chosen Psalm 40 in verses 8 through 10. Christ does away with the sacrifices of the law because the sacrifices were just a shadow after all. They, They completed nothing. They completed no one. He does away with the first in order to establish the second, in order to establish the thing that God had always desired, which was obedience. And he obediently offered the body that was prepared for him as a final sacrifice for sin. The kids on Wednesday night memorized Philippians 2 this last year, where it says, talks about Jesus, who says he's been found And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming what? Obedient. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Christ came like David, but as a greater David and said, Behold, I have come to do your will. In verse 10, And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The word sanctified means to be made holy, to be made complete. And because Christ offered himself once for all, we can actually be holy. We can actually be complete. We can be set apart. We can be acceptable before 
God because Christ has supplied the two things we need. He's supplied the sacrifice. He's supplied the atonement that needs, that needs to take place because of God's justice. But he's also supplied the obedience. He's also supplied the righteousness that we need. And, and so here the fundamental difference in Christianity emerges. You cannot be holy on your own. You cannot muster up your own holiness. It doesn't come through any list of things you can do. It doesn't come through the law. It doesn't come through continual ritualistic reminders of sin. It doesn't come through animal sacrifices. It says in verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The, the animal has no will involved. The animal doesn't know what's happening. The animal doesn't give itself willingly as a sacrifice for you. That kind of religion, it doesn't make you complete. It doesn't make you holy. Only a particular person makes you holy. Only a particular person can make you complete. And he does through through his own once-for-all sacrifice and through his own perfect obedience. Which leads us second to completion through offering. Completion through offering. When we're talking about offering, we're talking about the priesthood of Christ. The, the priest is the one who makes these offerings before God. At, at this point in the book of Hebrews, there's been a lot about Christ's priesthood. In chapter 4, Jesus is the high priest who can sympathize and help with us and help us. In chapter 5, uh, he's the high priest who did not exalt himself, but was chosen on his own based on his own merits. In chapter 7, he's not just a priest, but he's a priest king, similar to Melchizedek in the Old Testament. In chapter 8, he's a high priest who's entered not just the earthly tabernacle, but who's entered heaven itself. And in chapter 9, he's a high priest who leads us in a new kind of worship. Here in chapter 10, we should quickly note about his offering, though, the posture of his offering, the schedule of his offering, and the effect of his offering. Very, very quickly. The posture of Christ's offering for sin, what's highlighted here is the difference between standing and sitting. Standing and sitting. Verse 11, every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Standing points to the futility of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Standing means the work continues. You ever get to the end of the day and you say, I've been on my feet all day. No one ever says that like rejoicing. No one's ever like, I've been on my feet all day. No, it's always bad. This is, this is not what you want. I've been on my feet all day. We're, we're, we don't want the continual project. We want the rest that comes afterward. So standing continues because the work continues. You sit down when the work is done. And so there's this futility because, because the, the standing continues because the work continues and the work continues because there's always fresh sin to continue to atone for, for the Old Testament priests. And that futility goes all the way back to, to Genesis 3, which is the birthplace of sin and the birthplace of futility. And the priest stands day after day, year after year, right? It's not just the day of atonement. There's the yearly sacrifice of the day of atonement, but then there's the daily sacrifice as well. 
But the posture of Christ's priesthood is different. Christ's posture is not the same. Verse 12, but when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Christ breaks the cycle that was born in Genesis 3. Christ comes and he does his work. He completes his work and now he rests. Sitting is a posture of rest. It's a posture of completion. And so if you're in Christ, you have this reassuring image that's given to you here of Christ who isn't standing, but who is seated. He isn't standing in, his con- in a continual work in, in futility. He, he is seated. He's resting in his completion. He's resting in his victory. Rest for you has been achieved. Rest for you has been won. It says in Hebrews 8, verse 1, now the point of what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And then there's the schedule of the offering, which is, is just very closely connected. It's very similar here. The Old Testament priests, they make these daily offerings, right? So there would have been a schedule. You would have been on the schedule at some point uh, if, if, you're a, if you're a priest in the Old Testament. But, verse 12, Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, for sins. So with Christ's priesthood, you don't need a schedule. The schedule is gone. Trust me, as someone who has paid close attention to a renovation project for two years, when the schedules are gone, the project is over. Christ's priesthood has no schedule because it was once for all. Christ brings to completion He brings to perfection. He ends the offerings. He ends the schedules, which leads us to the effect of the offering. Look at verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This word perfected here, it's very, very close to the word that Jesus uses on the cross when he says, it is finished. Two words of the same root. They even sound the same. Perfected here means to bring something to completion. He has completed for all time those who are being sanctified. Similar to what we see up in verse 10, we have been sanctified. That is, we have been made holy. Verse 10, it says, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So, so here in verse 14, those who are sanctified, that is those who are holy, are perfected. They are completed by his, by his single offering, which means you can be complete. You can be perfected because of this one single sacrifice. And for what? Remember the context of all this again. This is complete, not just period, but complete for what? He has completed us for something. And that something is worship. That's the context of the priesthood in the Old Testament. That's the context of of Christ's priesthood as well. That was virtually all of chapter 9 here in Hebrews. Christ has made us complete for worship. To be able to behold God, 
to be able to draw near to God and respond to God, not in fear and shame because of sin, and not in pride because we have gotten here on our own in some way, not in some kind of exhaustion because we've worked so hard to get here, but we respond to him in praise and glory and, and, and trust we, knowing we can draw near to God. And when we draw near to him, he will even draw near to us. This is why the word of God and, and Christ as the central message, the central person of the world, word of God is central in our worship services like we're in right now. It's why he has to be. Every, we gather every Resurrection Sunday to, to put Christ on display, to behold Christ and respond to him, remembering that it is finished. It is complete. All, that can, all that's left to do is just praise in light of what he has done. Other religions do not give you this. You will not get this in any human religion. The law does not give you this. The law, with every, and, and, and similarly with every other human religion, will ultimately crush you under the weight of its expectations. It will never produce rest. There's always another level and another level and another level, or there's, an, there's, there's the futility of another sacrifice and another sacrifice and another sacrifice, the Old Testament priesthood and the Old Testament sacrifices, they go hand in hand in not taking away sin. They're ongoing. They never produce the kind of person that God is searching for, the, God, the, the, the kind of person that God is making. They never produce someone who is complete, justified, and sanctified in his presence. The whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament was ultimately never for bringing us into the presence of God. It was a shadow of an, it was an outline of a person. And so your hope must be placed in this person. It's, it can't be placed in, in, in just the ideas. It can't be even placed in this, this thing that we come and do on Sunday mornings. It has to be in a person, in, in a humble person, an obedient person, in a self-sacrificial person, who, when he, verse 12, when he offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet, which is a reference to Psalm 110, which has been referenced multiple times, three other times in Hebrews Already, We're reminded that, if you can remember back to Melchizedek in, in chapter 7, the priest is not just a priest, but the priest is a king who is seated on a throne waiting until the time when his enemies are mating a footstool for his feet. So the final priest is a king. He is a greater King David. And his obedience and his offering inaugurate the new covenant, which leads us to the third way we find completion in this text. It's completion through covenant. You remember that a covenant is a kind of formal agreement that, that strengthens a relationship almost always between a greater party and a lesser party. Covenant is the way that God always relates to his people. Anytime you read God interacting with people in scripture, it's either he's making a covenant with them or he's interacting with them on the basis of a covenant that he's already made previously. Uh, there's 
Well, so how does, how does covenant make us complete? There's basically two, cat, two categories of covenants in, in Scripture. The first kind of covenant goes like this. It says, if you do this, you will live. Sounds a lot like the Old Testament. Sounds like the Old Covenant. It is the Old Covenant. If you do this, you will live. It sounds a lot like Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. Right? That's, it also sounds a lot like human religion. If you do this, you will live. And, and we are naturally drawn to that kind of an arrangement. That kind of arrangement makes sense to us. What, what's nice about that kind of relation, that, that, that arrangement is uh, as long as I fulfill my part, you owe me. We have, we have some control in, that, in that, kind of a, that kind of an arrangement. If you do this, you will live. But there's another kind of covenant in Scripture. And the second kind of covenant goes like this. It says, I will do this and you will live. I will do this and you will live. And a covenant like that can make you uncomfortable. Because in that kind of arrangement, you lose all control. But it's only a covenant like that that can make you complete. It's only a covenant like that that can actually bring you hope. And that's what we find in the new covenant. In verses 15 through 18, the author of Hebrews quotes one of the most important prophecies of Jeremiah about the new covenant. He's already quoted it at length. This is the second time he's referencing it. He quoted it at length and discussed it at length back in, in chapter 8. Just note how the author introduces, introduces here these, or introduces these verses from Jeremiah. In verse 15, he says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. So he's referring to Jeremiah's words as the Holy Spirit's words. So in other words, when the prophet Jeremiah is speaking, God is, is speaking. And what does God say through Jeremiah? In verses 15 and 16, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. In these two quotations from Jeremiah 31, we have both sanctification and justification. Sanctification, again, is being made holy. It's being made to holy, to be made like God. Justification, justification actually comes first in the order, in the, in the chronology or in the, the logic of things. Justification points to a legal reality. It has to do with being declared innocent or declared guilty. So if you have guilt, you are not justified. But if you are not guilty, you can be pronounced justified. So to be justified is to be pronounced not guilty. So we see sanctification in verse 16, because if the law of God is written on your heart and written on your mind, you're given the ability to carry out God's will. You're enabled to think and act in a way that is holy. It's a connection connected to sanctification. I become holy like God in my thoughts, in my words, and my actions. God promises in the new covenant to make you like you are not on your own. But then we see justification in verse 17. If God does not remember your sins anymore, will he pronounce you guilty or innocent? If he doesn't remember your sins anymore, if he's not going to remember them, 
he's not going to pronounce you guilty. In other words, he, he's going to pronounce you justified. Now, what's the point of the author of Hebrews making here? He ties it to what came above in verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, there are, is no longer any offering for sin. No longer any offering for sin. In other words, Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrifices and priesthood, there's no longer any offerings because it's fulfilled. It's connected to the promises made by God in Jeremiah 31. This is the third, this third point is connected to what has come above. It's connected to what makes us complete. God makes us perfect. He makes us acceptable before him. He makes us complete, able to draw near to him for worship. And remember, encompassed in worship is finding our delight, finding our greatest satisfaction and final fulfillment in what our hearts ultimately long for. God makes us complete for worship by revealing whose shadow the Old Testament law makes. It's the shadow of, of Christ by sending Jesus with a body to make the final sacrifice for sin, by demonstrating the finality of that sacrifice through the posture and the schedule and the effect of Christ's priesthood. And God makes us complete before him for worship and fulfillment in him by making us holy in Christ, by putting his law in our hearts so that we do his will, we can, so that we can actually begin to do his will. Remember, Jesus didn't just bring atonement. He brings obedience. God wants obedience. He's not just looking for in the absence of something negative. He's looking for something positive. Jesus came to do God's will. He came to do something positive, but now he makes it so that we will do his will, with his law written on our hearts and minds according to the promises of the new covenant. And he does this on the basis of our justification, that he remembers our sins and lawless deeds no more. Both of those things, sanctification and justification, he does because of the work of a person. It comes back again to a person. the sacrifice of a person, the offering of a person, the, the covenant God offers you through a person. You have to be connected not to an idea, not to just an event, not just to an experience or an emotion. You need to be connected to a person. We long for fulfillment. We are never fully satisfied. Do you sense yourself just always waiting for the next great experience, which is really just another worship experience? When's the next one coming? Are you tired of things that never make you whole, that never finally bring rest, of the project that's never completed? Maybe it's what keeps you trying to go back to the same high again and again, whether it's a bad habit or something even worse. Maybe it's what keeps you working like crazy in order to feel valued by others 
or working like crazy in order to feel valuable to yourself based on your own achievements in your own mind. Maybe it's what leaves you feeling sad and hopeless, wondering if things will ever change. God has provided a solution to the futility in all those things. And the guilt that comes with all the destructive and sinful ways we come up to to deal with that angst and that distress. The solution is not human religion. It's not a list of rules, a list of practices, a list of rituals, a list of mindsets. It's not kind of in, any kind of individual spirituality, whatever you find deep inside your heart. It's not even the Old Testament law, as good as that was. It came from God himself. The solution is a person. The solution is a person who is the substance of the law, who is the final sacrifice for sin, who is the priest king, who is the one whose offering removes sin and guilt. A person who is like the human key that unlocks the blessings of the new covenant. It's a person who is born in history, born under the law, born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, who's crucified dead and buried, who descended to the dead, and then on the third day rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven and sits, he sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, waiting, verse 13, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And from there he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know the person? Is the essence of your life a person? Is the essence of your hope a person? Is the reason you come here on Sunday mornings Because you need to know a person. Because you need to see a person. Have you been made complete in Jesus Christ? Have you been made holy in Jesus Christ? Are you seeking your completeness in Jesus Christ? It won't be found anywhere else. Turn away from every other false answer. And seek Christ.